Who says you can't do luxury outside big markets like New York City, Los Angeles, or Washington, D.C.? Well, this week's podcast guests prove you can. You might not find as many weddings with massive budgets, but luxury pros can create a successful business in mid-sized towns and even destination markets. Jennifer T. and Sarah Gabbery, owners of Imani Events in Phoenix, Arizona, join me on today's episode of Own Your Business. They've carved out a very successful business over the past decade for themselves and, more importantly, elevated the level of luxury throughout their city in the process. Tune in today to learn how you can attract the right kind of clients and avoid those who are not a good fit. Find vendors locally and nationally to collaborate on the event and put yourself in a position to make the leap from premium to luxury. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I've booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets. Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. Welcome, Sarah, Jenny. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Super excited to have two guests at the same time, uh, both of whom are massively experts in the topic that we're about to go through, uh, how to sell luxury in the mid-market. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, Before we get going, as always, would love for you to introduce yourself and start with a little bit of background. Uh, Jenny, since I've known you the longest, why don't you go ahead and go first? (laughs) Is that the equivalent of whoever's the oldest? this gets to start this game. <laughs> I didn't um, say that you did. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> okay. So yes. Yeah, so I'm Jenny. I actually started the company ooh, years ago. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the question? Introduction? Yeah. Just an introduction of yourself. Okay. That's, that's me. I started the company 20 years ago. I'm Sarah. I'm Jenny's business partner. Together we own Amani Events. Um, We're based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. We do the majority of our weddings here, but we also do some destination too. Yeah. Wonderful. That's great. So you're in Arizona, which as we know, is a very popular state. I mean, Phoenix is what, like the sixth largest city in the Mm -hmm. country, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. top 10 quite often. Top 10. But it's not a massive market for weddings. And so what I want to talk about today is how you've managed to grow your business, especially over the 10 plus years in the luxury segment, uh, to work with outstanding clients and to be very profitable business while not having to be in, say, New York or Chicago or Miami or Los Angeles, some of those bigger markets. So before we get too into the to the weeds, how would you define a mid market? What what's what are some indicators that, that a listener might be in a mid market? So I would say it's more budget driven, like our average cost of weddings here. So typically, just Phoenix in general is probably spends around fifty to sixty ish on weddings, versus our clients are spending you know much more than that. Um, and just the access to vendors and resources and venues that we have um, in comparison to like New York and Chicago and less luxury properties, less luxury venues, things like that. Mm-hmm. 
So quality of creativity, production, um, is that impacted a lot, do you think, by the budgets that you're working with in a smaller market like Phoenix? Yeah, it just doesn't make sense for even like rental companies and some of your other vendors to invest in the higher end, more custom stuff because they won't, you know, make their money back on it or rent it enough or, or have, you know, the resources to make it make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so as wedding planners, you're responsible really for not only creating the vision, but also bringing it to life. So what are some of the things that you see from your clients as far as, you know, the visions that they have for their events? Do you find oftentimes that they're, you know, harder to produce because you're in a smaller market? Yeah, I would say there's resources galore for our clients to tell us what they want. So Pinterest, Instagram, anything online, any of the online blogs, online magazines, any of that kind of stuff. So for clients, no matter where they're located in the country to actually find something that they like and then show us as their planner what they want is really easy. The hard part comes with us trying to actually give them what they want because we know what's available here. We know what we can actually do here with our rental products, our lighting companies, our production companies, what have you. So it is really difficult. And it it did take a long time for even Sarah and I to really get to a place where we had to push the people around us to at least try to accomplish part of that goal. So it may not be an exact replica of a picture. It may not be everything that the client has asked for. And sometimes they're asking for things that they don't actually have money to purchase in the first place because they just don't have a frame of reference for that. But it was something that we felt was very important for our company in this mid-market to at least try to create opportunities for people to push the envelope up. And so a lot of that, that envelope pushing was only made possible with you providing recommendations or direction or insights or perspectives from your clients to these vendors saying, Hey, here's something that we'd like to be able to do. Is that possible for you to help make happen? Mm -hmm. I think it's also challenging because people come to Arizona sometimes and think they're going to have a more reasonable wedding because it's in Arizona versus in some of your bigger cities. And that's not really the case. A lot of times we are spending more money to actually bring resources and rentals into Arizona that we don't have access to versus if you're in California, all of those places are local. And here we're bringing all of that in. You know, that's interesting because I would imagine you get a lot of snowbirds that, you know, maybe they're, they're the older generation is coming in and vacationing or second home. Um, I also know that in Arizona, there's a lot of outdoor activity where people come on vacations. Um, you know, you can easily fly into, uh, you know, Phoenix and within two or three hours, you can be in some really great destinations, either down south in Tucson or up north in, say, Sedona, for instance. Um, do you see a lot of people coming from out of state from bigger markets, L.A.? San Francisco, New York, Chicago that are, you know, second home or, or seasonal visitors that want to host weddings. Yeah. Yeah. That's almost all of our clients. Yeah, exactly. So about 85% of the people we work with do not live here in Arizona. So they are coming from all the big cities you just mentioned. I mean, just this year alone, we've had San Francisco, New York City, Chicago, Dallas, California, Southern California, Seattle. So they're coming here for sure for the weather, for the outside experience. But yeah. Mm -hmm. 
do you think that puts you in the same kind of class as say like an Aspen or a Vail or a Jackson Hole where it's a, a smaller market, but you do have, you know, big city clients that are coming from out of state? Yeah. And we do have similar issues to those places where, you know, they also have to bring in a lot of resources. They have a hard time with people who are, you know, actually working at some of these resorts. We don't experience it so much in Phoenix, but in Sedona, you know, it's very expensive to live in Sedona. So having the resources in Sedona for a wedding market is really hard. People who are up there are vacationing. They're not living their day-to-day life. So, um, yeah, we do kind of have a similarity. Um, I think the difference is in, in, at least in my mind, um, having the company for as long as I've had it is that I think historically those places are kind of known for having, you know, a very, uh, unique wedding market and to do a wedding there, it does cost a lot of money. It's very special. They're not churning wedding over wedding over wedding. Whereas in Phoenix, because we are a big city, we do have still that kind of mentality of as many weddings as we can possibly do at some of these venues they're doing. So when we're coming in and we're trying to do these high-end luxury weddings, even if there's a one day build out or a two day build out, the venues where we're at are just not accustomed to that. They, they don't necessarily understand that because they want to do multiple weddings every day that they can on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. So I think that that differentiates us a little bit from those kind of smaller towns, but there are some similarities. You know, it's, it's interesting as you you were describing that I remember going back to my days when I was a venue manager at the destination property up here in Washington. Uh, we, we had a, a very wealthy patron of our resort come in from out of state. Uh, the family happened to own a baseball team. And so, you, you know, you can imagine what kind of wealth that, uh, that, that comes with as far as expectations and ideas. Well, you know, they came in and did stuff at our resort that I had never seen in the decade that I was there. And having now been in the luxury space for as long as I have, that's not out of the ordinary to do something mm-hmm. like that. But when you're in a smaller market and somebody like that comes in, it can be almost disorienting and uh, and and super challenging to produce because of those heightened expectations, even though the resources aren't there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in some ways, there's that luxury destination feel from people coming out of state, but you also have, you know, the the regular everyday Arizonans who are from that area that are hosting their weddings and are are used to the culture and the vendors that are available there. Uh, You know, what are some of the challenges that you see with the vendors that you work with that are um, in Arizona? Not challenges in working with them, but what kind of challenges, obstacles do you collectively as uh, a group of vendors working together, putting on an event? What are some of the, the obstacles that you run into? It all kind of goes back to resources or even just staffing because they're not used to doing a ton of luxury weddings. They don't maybe have the staff that knows how to service luxury weddings or is used to, if you even think about flowers, that's used to designing on that type of level or has the space that can do that. So I think that's probably the hardest part. I also think mentality shift is a big Mm -hmm. kind of struggle for us. You know, Sarah and I have made very specific plans for our company and how we want to kind of address luxury and how we want to service our clients. And 
because of those decisions that we're making, it's hard for us to get some of the vendors that we're working with to be on the same page. So for example, we only do six to eight events a year per planner because we want to make sure that we're available for our clients. But we're working with vendors who are literally doing so many weddings, I can't even like fathom. So when we're trying to service our clients, I mean, we have weekly calls with our clients. We're on base camp with our clients. We are emailing very consistently with our clients. When we're doing that kind of high touch service with the people that we're working with, but yet we're waiting on people who have 40 weddings before our wedding happens, it becomes a very uh, difficult situation because there's a, there's a mind shift there where they're like, Oh, well, I'm just taught. I'm just churning, 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 churning. And even vendors who we know are with us as far as pushing the envelope, as far as design and pushing the envelope, as far as rentals and things like that, they're, they're busy. And so I think sometimes that, that shift is a little bit hard for us to kind of overcome. So we just have to be really communicative with our clients and say, Hey, look, here are decisions we've made as far as your planners that we can service you to the best of our ability. But just understand that just because this person has 40 weddings doesn't mean that they're not going to do a good job for you. It just means that they're going to be lagging in communication, whereas we're really on top of the communication, whatever the case may be. So I think that that is a little bit of a rub. Some clients really understand it. Some clients, we have to talk to them about it multiple times before they understand it um, so that they know that it's not us who's not getting them the information they need. But we're waiting for the information. We've given all the appropriate context for that information. We're just in a holding pattern until we have something that we can work off of. So that would and be even what just I would little think. things. Yeah. Like vendors who aren't used to working luxury weddings, like what do you wear? You know, mm-hmm. showing up in professional clothes, having your team be on brand and match and how to talk to guests of that level and things like that that people just sometimes aren't used to doing here that we have to remember to communicate, communicate those things. What are you wearing to the event? Mm -hmm. Just little things like that, that make a big difference at this level. Yeah. We were just at engage in Ireland and I was sitting down and talking with a couple of planners who were in another big city, but a, you know, a mid sized market for weddings. And they expressed some of the same concerns that, that you are sharing right here. And they were talking with me about how do we elevate the entire market? How do we get everybody to get on the same page? You know, we chatted about some ideas, but I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, obviously you've kind of turned a corner with the mindset shift. Jenny, you had mentioned that, you know, you had really kind of uh, pushed through to elevate the entire Arizona or Phoenix, uh, you know, luxury market. What are some of the things that you found were, you know, helpful for the entire area to level up their, mm-hmm. their experience or the creativity or the inventory of items that they could rent or, or design with? I think it's showing them, yeah, like long-term how it can better their businesses, like why they would want to do this, why they should invest in these things and painting more of a long-term picture and just a better quality of life, less weddings, more time at home, more time for other hobbies. You can make more money, kind of explaining more of a business side to these other small business owners so that they feel more invested to do some of these things. And just educating them, communicating, and trying to motivate them to get more on our our same level. I would say that communication is key. I mean, we have many conversations with people. I think for the 
first part of when we tried to really make this shift in our company, we were having lunches and coffees and happy hours with everybody. Cause they're like, talk to me, tell me what you're doing. How are you doing this? And eventually Sarah and I were like, okay, we're, we need to like take a break from helping other people's businesses <laughs> because that seems to be all we're doing at this point. But it was mutually beneficial to everybody involved that we were trying to kind of spread this idea of luxury around this mid market. Um, being that we were at Ireland at engage Rishi said, you know, luxury is not a thing. It's an experience. And so even if our clients don't have multi-million dollar events happening, we can still provide them a luxurious experience and a high touch experience as it working with our companies. So kind of giving them some insight into what that means for everybody around them, I think was really key. And whether that's you're a florist or a photographer or a rental company. So no matter how big or small your company is really taking some things that are scalable ideas and bringing them down to whatever you can afford or bringing them down to whatever you can control. If you can control your communication, if you can control, control your uniform, if you can control your email signature, (laughs) like if you can control some of these things that really are not client dependent, it doesn't matter how much money your client has or how many weddings you're doing with said client. If you can control these things, those luxurious elements will then turn into better clients and better weddings. And here's what we've seen in Arizona is that once we started small, um, like there was a really small rental company who had like probably like six couches when they first started. Right. And now they're humongous. And every time they do a purchasing trip, they email Sarah and I like, here's all the things we're looking at purchasing. What do you guys want? Cause what are your clients going to purchase? I have a client who's getting married in December and they're from the Dallas area and they wanted fire pits. And I was like, Hey, this other company has fire pits, but my client doesn't have the money to have four different rental companies at their wedding. Would you guys be interested in buying these fire pits? And so then they purchased fire pits on behalf of my client. And I've already found them another client who's also going to rent the fire pits. So even if it's like little tiny things, um, ways that we can help those around us accomplish the ultimate goal, it will really benefit everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, uh, so part of my background, I was the director of operations at Todd Events. And, you know, Todd Fiscus is a creative genius. And he he could see things that he wanted to do for his clients long before anybody had ever, you know, built the inventory for servicing those design needs. And one of the companies that emerged uh, in his portfolio of businesses was uh, a rental company. And the rental company started out based on the things that he needed to buy to service his clients from the design and production standpoint. And he ended up just having to, to pay for them by renting them out to other uh, planners in the market, and and it eventually became so successful that it, it was a uh, you know more than just a side business. It became you know an entire twenty five thousand square foot warehouse space that was you know doing a healthy amount of business on its own. But that occurred over a number of years, and it sounds like you don't have that rental business, but you're working with partners who are in your market and saying, Hey, I have this design I can come up with. And if you can get the inventory, I can at least get you one and and probably more opportunities to, to put that into play. And so if you help me, if you go out on a limb with me on this one, then, then I can get us across this bridge of not having the right kind of inventory for these kinds of parties. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think and- philosophically, Sarah and I, I mean, we've talked about that in the past, but I think philosophically there are little tiny companies who already have an infrastructure in place. So if we're trying to elevate the market as a whole, then it's, again, mutually beneficial for us to help that company reach its full potential and really just rely on them to do the things that we need for them to do. So then they can have a better company. We can have a better company. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of how we've approached it. And we've even had a lot of florists here build and fabricate custom structures and custom things that they have been rented out a million times after us to other planners. So we always go to them with a crazy idea of something to build or fabricate and they do it knowing once the pictures are posted and other things, other people in our market will then re-rent it and reuse it. So if you're a planner and you're listening to this episode, go out to your your vendors that you work with, people who you rely on to help design or create the parties that you have in mind and, and ask them for the help. And if you are a vendor that is hoping to work with planners that are creatives and visionaries and wanting to do new, new, exciting things in the marketplace, find those people and ask them, how can I help do things that will elevate your business with my own? Those are, those are things like you said, Jenny, that are going to be mutually beneficial and, and eventually lift up everybody who's in the marketplace. I'm curious, how many years did this take for you to say, you know, I think that we can do bigger, better, more exciting, interesting, creative projects for higher paying clients. And now we need to, now we need to figure out this vendor team. Now we need to get this inventory. Now we need to be known for it. How, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, how, how long is this process for a, a marketplace? Do you think? I was going to say like a good four to five years. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing was we just hit a plateau here and we kind of hit the ceiling on a local level and we knew what we wanted to do next. So we stopped comparing to other local planners and what our local market is doing and compared to a national market and kind of held ourselves to what the other big planners and luxury weddings are doing on a national level versus a local level since we already, you know, hit the ceiling locally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's, I think that's smart. You looked outside of your own immediate comp set comparables and, and decided to look at, at what, the, what the other big dogs were doing in the bigger markets. What kind of mindset shift was that for you? Yeah, I think for me, <laughs> I mean, I've been in the business for, you know, longer than Sarah. Sarah joined the company later on, but I think for me, it was definitely a learning curve because I was seeing basically what happens when you're looking at other markets is you're seeing what they're doing, but you're not understanding how to do that. So you see the the end result in an image and you see the end result in a video and you see where they are located as far as their travel destinations. And you're seeing kind of like what they're doing in the paper land and what, but you have to then learn how to do all of that. And that's where our mind shift really had to go. Cause I had been doing it for so long. So 
I knew everything I could possibly know about doing a wedding the way I was doing it. But five years ago, when we started this, I had to then start learning again. I had to start learning, how do you do all of these things? Um, And Sarah and I actually joked with our lighting guy because it seems like every time we do a wedding now, we're doing something different and we don't know what the hell we're doing. (laughs) We're like, we're like, sorry, we don't have all the answers because we're trying new things all the time, which means that we never know what we're doing, right? Because we're trying so hard to like push the envelope that we're having to learn because all that we're seeing are images. We don't know the behind the scenes. We don't know how these images are coming to fruition. So we're really, and we don't have vendor teams here who know that, you know, I I'll show an image to a vendor team and be like, help me accomplish this. And they'll be like, I have no clue. And I'm like, awesome. So now me as a planner, I have to figure out how to do their job in order to accomplish this picture as well. So it's back to the learning boards. It's back to, you know, trying to figure out how to get to that, that next design idea, that next level, making a lot of like little silly mistakes here and there and fixing on the fly, like things like that. That to me was the biggest mind shift is having to go from, I already know how to do all of this. I could do this in my sleep to now I'm like working my full head off to try to figure out how to do something different all the time. I was uh, reading Matthew McConaughey's memoirs, uh, Green Light. I don't know if you've read it, but you should definitely read it and listen to it on audiobook because he reads it himself. It's phenomenal. Like I don't, well, he, could be talk- <laughs> <laughs> he could be talking about a fence post for the entire seven hours and it would be great listening, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but in there, he, he talks about how he got kind of pinned into the rom-com role and, you know, he really wanted to get out of it. And so he made a decision with himself and he and his wife and he said, look, I'm, I'm going to turn down every single rom-com role that comes my way, no matter what, because if I'm doing that, I can't take on a role that I really love. And he he talked about this role that came along and I don't remember the numbers. It was something like, you know, two million, four million dollars that he, they, he had gotten offered to play this this role. And he said, pass. And they said, well, we'll pay you, you know, double. He said, pass. They came back six months later and said, we've tried other people. We, we, we only see you in this role. We'll pay you, you know, a ton of money to do it. He said, pass. And it ended up getting to the point where it was like stupid money, how much he was turning down, but he still turned it down and he didn't end up working for something like 15 months. I, again, I don't remember what the specifics were, but the next role that came around was the role in Dallas Buyers Club which really set his career in a complete different trajectory. And so I hear you with the having conviction and making sure that you aren't weighted down by taking what's in front of you uh, just because it's there, just because you can, just because it's easy. If you're going to level up, uh, especially in, in a market where there's not a lot of volume for the luxury space, you need to have some conviction that what you're doing is something mm-hmm. that you're that you're committed to. But you've also, I would imagine you need to have a safety net. So saving up some money would, would be a good thing. Um, and maybe doing it when you have, you know, one or two really great events that mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're going to build your portfolio. What are some other things that you found were helpful as you were looking at taking that risk, taking that plunge and really pivoting into a different space? I think telling everybody where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do too. So most of our business is referrals from past clients or hotels. So we sat with every hotel. We told them our goals, what we're trying to do, that we're no longer doing day of, we're no longer doing partial. 
We only want full planning clients who are doing multiple day events and just communicating that to a market to attract those clients so that they were coming our way versus where before we were getting a ton of lower end weddings and kind of separating ourselves and why we're different right away. We also kind of tiered into it. When we first decided that we were going to switch to percentage model, I did it first. So I was going to be the one that was going to sell percentage. We have other planners who work for our company. So Sarah was going to still stay at a certain level. And then the other girls were going to still stay at a certain level just to make sure that financially we didn't, we didn't bottom out. Um, We have obligations to all the people who work for us. So we wanted to make sure that we were still hitting those obligations. What was lovely is that the very first wedding we did, that was a percentage based model made more money than we had made, you know, doing six weddings prior. So we really, Realized the model did work. Then Sarah came into selling the percentage. Then a couple years later, we brought the girls into selling the percentage. So we kind of definitely layered it in because again, at the time we were really pushing that, that rock uphill. We didn't have anybody else who was competing against us. So it was kind of like, Hey, I'm the only one that's doing this. And if you want to work with me, then you're going to have to pay it. So then the people who were paying it were like, okay, now we're into it. And then when people see on Instagram, okay, well, that person paid it because I'm talking to that same girl. So then maybe it is okay. And then it kind of like starts to snowball a little bit. Um, We eventually have more normalcy now. And then the conversation is a little bit more of a conversation that they've heard. So it's not so far out from left field. I mean, I had to work really hard. Sarah had to work really hard in the beginning to try to get people to hire us, charging what we were And understand. Yeah. Understand it. Yeah. A lot of people at the luxury level, though, if you think about their lives and get to know who you're actually selling to and your clients, their interior designer, everybody around them Mm -hmm. is charging them a percentage. So for us, it felt a little bit different. But for them in the markets that they're coming from, that is what they're hearing and what they're used to. Yeah. It was just all about us trying to explain why the other planners they were talking to were not doing it. So we had to get really creative into discussing why we did what we did without ever negatively talking about what other people have done. You know, one of the things that I think is helpful, not just for planners, but for any person in in any field is to do that kind of incremental approach that you talked about. You know, I remember when I was selling venues, we had that big blowout event and I was like, we should do this every weekend. <laughs> they, you know, they, sh- they should bring in a tent and build a floor and build a deck and, you know, have headliner and, you know, the whole deal. And so what I decided to do, though, was be realistic. And that was really to reserve four weekends out of the next year to block off for full weekend experiences. We were a wedding venue that did you know, one wedding per day, but, but we would do multiple weddings over the weekend because that's what we, we needed to do to meet our goals. So I, I blocked off four where we were only going to do one weekend and you can essentially have a buyout of all of the venues for the weekend to do a big, big celebration. And then we were able to, to increase that, um, you know, for photographers, for instance, that are listening to this, one of the things that you may want to do to make more money and work less is to do multi-day events. Uh, I would recommend taking the same measured approach where maybe 
maybe you pick the you know three four five or or six big weekends of the year that you know are super popular and reserve those for a two or a three day event um, if you're a stationer maybe you take your busiest time of the year and and you you say you know what i'm only going to do three events this this month and and you reserve those with a higher minimum that way you don't have to go all in it may take like you said jenny and sarah it may take several years for the the portfolio to reflect the kind of work to get the kind of referrals from people who have attended those events or coming on recommendations from your clients to cycle through and you know it may be a quarter of your your work every year then gets added into that higher echelon that higher caliber but it's pretty risky to go all at once it's a big lift and so taking that slow measured approach i think is a really great recommendation it seems to have worked very well for you you know five years ago it, it, it may seem daunting but looking back it seems like it was the right approach yeah, yeah and i know a lot of you could also However, if you're a photographer and you want to shoot 20 weddings a year, maybe where you're currently selling, you sell 10 weddings and then you jump up and you sell five more and then you jump up and sell five more. So you still have secured income and then you increase from there for that calendar year, which is another way you can do it too. Let's say I'm a listener of the podcast and I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, there's there's probably, you know, uh, a, a limit to what it is that you can do. Would you agree that there are just some markets that that you are going to hit, you know, some sort of ceiling in, in the amount of money that people are spending on a regular basis or the kind of clientele that you're going to work with, the kind of portfolio, uh, the kind of recognition you can get for your work? Do you think that that, that exists in much of the country? I do. I do. I do. And I think you have to be open to maybe going to other markets or shooting destination. I also think that we have to be more strategic about our businesses. So one thing that I think planners do wrong, and I do believe that this seeps into other industries as well. I just am not an owner of another industry is I think we tend to, when we start our companies or we grow our companies, we ask everybody around us who are also a planner or who are also a photographer, who are also a florist, like whatever it may be. And we take their words and we're like, okay, well, that's how they did it. So that's how I have to do it. And I think we forget that there's some intuition that we have as human beings and as entrepreneurs and as business owners and as people who care about our you know, flowers or photos or whatever, where we have to really look more strategically at, okay, this is a business. So it's not a hobby. It's not something I do on the weekends. Like I do think that there's some mentality out there still, especially even with clients where it's like, I mean, how hard can it be to shoot a wedding? Like everyone has an iPhone and everyone takes pictures. Right. So it's like you, you, you have to like fight some of that mentality as well and say, Hey, look, I'm a professional. This is why I'm a professional. So therefore, if I'm going to have the salary of this and I want to shoot this many weddings, this, that, you have to like do some basic math as a planner. You have to look at, even if I'm in a mid market, like Sarah and I looked at, we're like, okay, fine. Let's just say our weddings are 80 to a hundred thousand dollars a year. Let's just say it stops there. Even going to a percentage model for us at that time was making us more money than we were charging at a flat rate. So for us, it was a strategic move where it was like, Hey, we will make more money doing this because even at our lowest point, we're not charging enough money for what we're managing. But 
seeing the growth of weddings over the, over time, it just has kind of snowballed into more and more expensive weddings. I don't think Sarah and I were like, Hey, we're going to bring luxury to Arizona. What we did is we recognized what we already had. And then we just elevated that incrementally over time. And now people can come to Arizona and feel very confident in having a luxurious event here because we now do have resources. We're still limited resources, but we know how to at least bring other things in, in the meantime. And I'm confident that in the next 10 years, we will have everything available to us at our fingertips. It's just, you have to like, look at it as a business and have long-term goals, short-term goals, weekly goals, daily goals, (laughs) things like that. So, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, this idea of looking around you and talking with people and seeing what other people do who are in your same field, uh, you know, that, that creates, um, I think uh, an echo chamber in some ways mm-hmm. uh, where everybody's hearing, saying, doing the same things. Um, but it it also makes it really challenging for uh, the buyer to differentiate themselves or to, to differentiate the vendors that they're considering for the, the, the wedding that they want to have. And, you know, there's this thing uh, that I've been reading about called uh, mimetic desire or mimesis. And, um, you know, it's a human condition, the human nature to look around you and go, oh, I want to do that or that that's what I want. Now, I think it goes for what you said with the, uh, the, the, the vendor, but it also applies to the person who's buying the vendor services. They look around and, and see, you know, Arizona wedding venues or, you know, whatever the hashtag is that they're searching out on uh, Instagram or they're plugging into Pinterest and they're using to set their expectations, their inspiration, their desires. If you can be the first one to bring something truly new and unique to the market or do it in a different way, it's it's eventually going to start attracting the kind of people who want to buy that because you're putting it out into the marketplace for them to look at and go, oh, I want to do that compared to what other people are doing. I think it's a good long-term strategy. It does take time, like you said, but eventually you'll stand out from the crowd by the very nature of what it is that you're producing. Mm-hmm. For sure. When you go back and you think about the group of people that you ended up doing work with, are you finding that you tend to work with that kind of small cadre of people time and again, the people who have you know joined you? Do birds of a feather really flock together even in a mid-market or more so in a mid-market, do you think? 100%, yes. Um, but I think we have still a big enough network where everybody's a little bit different. So we have multiple vendors in every category, depending on the client personality and aesthetic and budget. And I think also we bring a lot of people in outside of Arizona, which has really elevated our business because they're used to working luxury weddings. So even just having that as an option for our clients to when they work with other local planners, they don't know, you know, bands that come in or photographers that come in and don't have any experience working with them, which has helped us differentiate our business compared to others. But for us, for to tell a client to work with someone, I have to know that they're going to be good and what they're like to work with and what their personality is. And I don't feel comfortable referring, you know, people unless I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Where do you source your your vendors that are new to you or not in your current market? From other planners or vendors that I trust that have worked with them. 
Yeah. Just like you want your clients to do word of mouth, right? That's, that's big. I know Jenny, you and I have seen each other quite a bit at, at engage. Has that been a successful platform to find new vendors as well? It It feels like there's some vetting that goes on there and you can ask other planners and designers real quick. Hey, what do you think about that person over there in the corner? Mm-hmm. Let me say, I mean, that's been huge for us. Just having another resource in which most of those people are in the same area that are like-minded engaged has been really huge. Um, we've met some of our favorite photographers there. We've met some of our favorite bands there, seeing them play in person, seeing their photography end up on your engage app afterwards. Like that's really a good way for us to be able to quote unquote work with that person without having to hire them and put our clients sweating on the line. So um, yeah, engage has been huge for that. And then also just establishing relationships with other planners in which we can say, Hey, my client's looking at so-and-so because they happen to live in the same city as that person. Have you worked with them? Are they good? What's the experience like that kind of stuff. And really having that kind of like roundabout vetting of that vendor before what we would do is we would just call them, you know, like if it's an Arizona vendor and we've never worked with them and we don't know anything about them, we'd call them and we'd ask them a series of questions and then just like, you know, throw it up and pray that it all works out. (laughs) So like having the ability to talk to other people is really, is really key. I mean, it's, monumental for us. You know, one of the things that if you're not a planner uh, and you're trying to figure out how you can make connections or introductions to people that uh, you may not know, now knowing how important it is for there to be that trust there uh, is you can, you know, if you're a photographer or stationer, you can find a mutual friend to somebody that you want to work with. And I know it's crazy, but Instagram will show that oftentimes uh, you can also go on LinkedIn uh, and you can see who's connected to whom. Uh, it could be that maybe you see a photograph of somebody who's at Engage or at a, you know, a WIPA event or some other industry event. And you're like, oh, I want to do work with person A. Uh, and my friend person B is standing next to them with their arm around them. Clearly they're buddy, buddy. I wonder if I can get B to introduce me to A. So that's just a little takeaway for anybody who's not a planner that's looking to get in with one. It is all about reducing risk because if you're doing six to eight events or even 10 to 12 events a year as a planner, you cannot afford to have a, a portfolio that comes away mediocre. You cannot afford to let down that client who's paying premium dollars. You can't afford the risk. And so you've got to hire people that you can trust. So there are lots of different ways that you can get in, but a recommendation is going to be key. So definitely stay focused on that, whether you're a planner or not. I'm curious when you go through and you think about the kinds of vendors that you tend to work with that are from out of your market. Like if I'm in, again, I'll just use Milwaukee and I want to expand to a bigger market. Phoenix could be a step up for me and, and say, I wanted to, you know, explore other markets like that. What kind of vendor categories do you see able to jump from one location to the other? Obviously a photographer is easy, right? Have camera will travel. I'll throw out stationer as another one. Oftentimes that can be something that's done from afar, especially after the Mm -hmm. pandemic, you know, getting out of the studio. Not all stationers have studios. (laughs) What are some other categories that you typically see coming in from, say, out of state? Entertainment is a huge one. Um, And for us, our clients don't live here. So for us to bring people in, it, it doesn't matter where they're coming from because they're not needing them or going to see them anyways. So entertainment, we almost always bring in, obviously, video, paper, rentals, 
um, are easy if they're coming from the West Coast, at least for Arizona. I think the biggest challenge is florists because with a venue, they don't have the space for you to work out of multiple days ahead of time. But unless you're a florist, I say it's, you know, pretty easy to go destination. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. The about florist. The florist? Yeah. So I think they have a lot of products that they have to get somewhere and then they need a space in the staff. So to bring a florist in, the cost is just it's much more expensive than when you're bringing in somebody and you need a flight in a hotel. And then the venues, you need like a ballroom space and they're doing multiple wedding events that weekend. So we don't really have any space for them to work out of the days leading up to these events. Mm-hmm. So that can be very challenging unless, you know, your client's dead set on having someone and is open to spending a lot more money to have them here. And we have, like, we've brought yeah. in floral design teams yeah. from out of state. And then we've also worked out of state and brought our floral design teams with us. Mm-hmm. So we've done it and we know what it costs. I think that's where there might be a little bit of a distinction between luxury and that ultra luxury, because the cost for the product, even our clients who have gobs and gobs of money are like, can't we just find someone local? <laughs> like, I mean, some of them really do are like, isn't there, I mean, there are flowers being shipped to Phoenix, aren't there? You know, like it's really like hard <laughs> for them to understand. Whereas like when you have like a personality, like a band or a personality, like a, or a talent, like a photographer, like they can understand that a little bit more. So I would think that, you know, traveling, it's not impossible. If you're a florist, you just have to understand really clearly what it is that justifies your cost. And then once you can understand that doesn't mean no one's going to hire you for it. It just means you have to understand what you're working up against. I think to answer your question earlier, Sam, like when I first started going to engage, And we were doing some destination weddings, but not a lot. I would have a lot of photographers try to give me advice (laughs) and they'd be like, Hey, why don't you just do a free wedding for somebody? And I'm like, okay, listen, first of all, (laughs) for you to do a free wedding for someone just means you have to hop your butt on a plane and go shoot it. And then you send it off to some editor and you turn it around to the client in eight weeks. For me to do a free wedding for someone is (laughs) seven to 900 hours of work and time and effort is expense on a team level that I have to bring a team to execute. Like, it's just, it's not equitable. So I think sometimes like planner is going to work out of state florists going to work out of state. Um, some of these like bigger production companies trying to work out of state, like those are just going to be harder. It's just going to be easier for photographers, videographers, stationers, um, people like that, that have something that's a little bit more streamlined and very, very low cost for them to be able to break out of their market. And I think from a client perspective, it's easier to hire like photo video or bands because a lot of times they just send you one fee with all of their travel versus when you're doing planners or florists, it's like, Oh, and we need all of these other things. And sometimes they're TBD costs. So it makes it more complicated from a client perspective to hire those people and bring them in. Do you offer a choice of local or (laughs) out of the market vendors for your clients then? Do you say, hey, you can have this person who does a really great job and you're definitely going to have your expectations met, but maybe not blown away and it's going to cost you what it is that you want to spend? Or if you want to splurge and really have your socks knocked off, 
but spend 120% of what you wanted to spend, you could go with this option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually have a project management system that we onboard all of our clients to. And in the project management system, it says like, here are local vendors and here are your like luxury level vendors. So even in the like blanket referral part, we are doing that. And then once we meet with our client and we kind of come to terms with their budget and their style and their personalities, we will then, and, and what's important to them, we will then say, Hey, if this is really important to you, then let's do this. Like I have a client right now, we're flying in their band from New York city but yet they're spending like $0 on flowers, (laughs) you know, like, so for some people, it's like, what is important to them? I had another client where flowers were nothing, like everything was all about the flowers. Um, and so then we just used a local photographer, right? So like that kind of stuff, there is some give and take in there for sure, but we are offering the higher level vendors to all of our clients in every situation, even when it comes to, I mean, I just shipped back Cassidy Perrin for a client. Cause it's like, here's plates. Can you get plates in Phoenix? You can get plates in Phoenix, but these are really pretty plates, you know? So it's like, here are pretty plates. Do you want pretty plates? Okay, fine. Let's pay for the pretty plates or we don't pay for the pretty plates. Like we're literally giving them all of these options down to like the little itty bitty forks, you know? And then it's up to them, you know, where they want to invest and how they want to invest. Mm-hmm. I love that approach, you know, giving them the control of the spend uh, based on your recommendations for what are your priorities and how can we spend Mm -hmm. the money based on those priorities. I'm curious, when you go through and you think about the kinds of events that you're creating and the vendors that you're working with, what do you think are some of the best steps that planners can take to move from where they're at to break through that plateau that you talked about hitting several years ago. What's the the number one recommendation that you would make for a planner who's hoping to do that? You know, whether they're in Phoenix or Milwaukee or, you know, Cleveland. I would say be consistent. Um, be consistent with your brand, with your service. Once you make a decision on where you want to go, be consistent and stick with it. And then as a planner, you need to find a trusted you know, venues and vendors who can take you there and who are on that same level. Yeah. And I would say to maybe take back a little bit of the control. I always used to use this analogy that, you know, being, if you've ever ridden on a boat in a lake or the ocean or whatever, and it's a high speed boat, when you're the driver of the boat, you have a lot more control than when you're like the poor sod in the back of the boat, that's like bouncing around and getting sprayed by water. Right. So like if you're in the back of the boat and you're letting your client drive the boat, you're letting your vendor drive the boat. Like if you're letting somebody else drive the boat, you're just along for the ride. And eventually you're going to get sprayed with water and look like a wet dog at the end of this ride. Right. The other option is driving the boat and really making sure that where you're going is where you want to go with your business. We're not control freaks. Sarah and I are definitely like, Hey, here's our game plan. We want everyone to be in line with this game plan. But ultimately, every vendor is responsible for their own product. Every vendor is responsible for their own behavior and their own result. But I think if you as a planner want to really go to the next level, you have to start taking control over little things that will really bring you to that next level. Those little things could mean different things for different people. Like we had a florist one time who just didn't do candles. I don't do candles, just flowers, no candles. Okay, great. So we have flowers on the table and no one can see them because it's dark in this room. Right. So like we had to like kind of consistently talk to her about like, 
Hey, why don't you get candles? Or then we had to rent candles. One time Sarah and I were literally in Jackson Hole and we were like Amazoning candles and candlestick holders to, Am- to Jackson Hole because we were like, these floors are not doing candles. We were not in that price point apparently where people did candles, whatever. So it was a little tiny thing, but for us, it was really important because all of this really is consistent with our brand and what we're trying to portray on the World Wide web and the Instagram and all of that. So taking control over little tiny things that you know are going to be important, um, no matter how small it seems is really for me where I've done what I've tried to do my whole career. So. And that's going to build that portfolio that will then attract that kind of client that mm-hmm. you want to see in the future. Yeah. I mean, I remember even just when we first started and our weddings weren't super luxurious, but you know what I did? I hired a <laughs> photographer who made $80,000 weddings look like $200,000 weddings. And we had had $200,000 weddings where we had crap photographers where the wedding was like terrible. We could never show it. Right. So we took control over, Hey, here's our only photographers we like to work with. And I think at the time it was like three, you know? So it was like, here are the three people who will actually give us images that we can feel confident using after the wedding is over. And once you do that over and over and over again, now you can have better weddings because people think that wedding was more expensive than it was because you just had a talented person capturing it. I mean, there are little shifts that you can really invest in. I agree with the photography. It's amazing. I was at a wedding uh, last month, a friend who got married down in San Miguel and she had uh, James Christensen and Otto Schulze mm-hmm. who are oh, incredible that. photographers. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember being at the wedding and seeing what I saw. And then I saw the photos and I was like, it was incredible to be there, but it looks even better in the images. How did they do yeah. this? And you realize that that's why James and Otto, you know, do what they do and why they get Mm -hmm. the kind of clients that they get. I I was going back to, as you were talking about bringing in that photographer and, you know, really needing to level up when I was working at the resort up here in Washington, I remember when I had this really great wedding that had come in, but they were really putting the screws to me on wanting to save some money because they were spending it on all the design and decor. And we, we were selling the catering. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to give them a discount, but what I am going to do is I'm going to give them a credit on a photographer that I know will deliver great images for all this beautiful design and decor. And so I actually subsidized their photography budget with a credit and reached out to the photographer that I wanted them to work with that I knew as a friend and also could deliver these amazing images. So rather than, you know, try to cut corners in areas that I knew, you know, we needed, I decided instead to capitalize on their interest in showcasing the design and decor. So you can get creative. I mean, I, I sold in a mid market and we sold luxury events. You, you have to do new and original thinking when it comes to building your portfolio. It's not just going to happen to you. If, if it would have, then, then it would have happened a long time ago, or it's going to happen to everybody else. If you want to set yourself apart from the pack, you got to make sure that you're doing new and different original things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's what the advice would be for planners. Now, for those who are listening to this and are not planners that are, are vendors, maybe say in that marketplace, uh, and maybe they don't have the kind of good natured and uh, uh, benevolent and uh, uh, creative thinkers like you who are leading the charge and saying, we're going to elevate our entire city. What would you recommend to them to 
get the kind of events that will really feed them creatively and pay them what they want to get paid. How does, and, and you know, not, not necessarily a photographer, but a floral designer or a venue or uh, a rental company or a stationer, how do you, how do you kick it up a notch and start working with planners like you who can do that kind of work for them? I think for that, it's easier. I think if I'm a floral designer and I'm really wanting to work with higher level clients, then I invest in my designs. I invest in my staff. I invest in my rentals. I invest in all of these things that I just do one or two weddings to the best of my ability. And I really do it well. And maybe I don't make the most money off of those weddings, but I'm doing it knowing that in the future I'm going to. So I think if I were a florist or a a design team, that's what I would do. If I was a stationer, I would do the same thing. I would letterpress something that somebody didn't, didn't ask me for so that I could have the content to show that this is what I do. I would wax seal the heck out of something. I would give silk ribbon. I would do like whatever it needs to be to say, Hey, I can also do that, that I'm seeing on Instagram. I mean, I feel like for those people, it's so easy because they can, they're in control of that. They can actually, just like you subsidize the photographer, you weren't in control of the, the photography, but you were able to subsidize it so that you can actually have somebody there who would do what you wanted to do. I mean, for someone who is a photographer or who is a paper person, who is a floral designer, who is a rental company owner, you are 100% in control of that. You can say, I want to do a luxury you know, rental company and you buy luxury items mm-hmm. and you put it at your client's wedding for free. And you have images now that show that you rent that plate or you rent that couch. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, to me, a no brainer. And they have tangible items they can show for it versus services. Mm -hmm. I like that approach in the sense that it gives a client an upgraded experience as well, which is kind of a nice side benefit because uh, it benefits your business long-term, but their event short-term. Um, you know, whether you decide to upgrade the china or the linens or, uh, you know, put a little bit more oomph on a centerpiece that might be photographed quite a bit, you know, whatever it might be, um, you can always upgrade your own services and the, the client benefits as well as your business. And that's that's a that's a win win that, that can go on for a long time. And I've even done that from a planning perspective, you know, asking a rental company or another small business to bring something that my client didn't pay for. For both of us to get the content from it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So if you're a photographer, you could offer an extra day's coverage, for instance, and that would yeah. showcase that you can do rehearsal dinners. You can't sell rehearsal dinners as easily if you don't have them in your portfolio or if mm-hmm. you are missing something in your rental inventory or your stationer. I love the mm-hmm. idea of the, you know, adding silk or the wax seal or, you know, whatever else it might be. Something's got to be photographed and put out for your portfolio for people to know that you can do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good advice. Thank you for that. Tell me if people wanted to learn a little bit more about your company and what you've done and see your own portfolio and how you showcase that in a mid-market, where can they go and get more information? Yeah, I would encourage them to go to our website or our Instagram. Mm-hmm. Easy. And it's amanievents.com or at amanievents, and they can reach out to us on there. And that's I M. O-N-I for Imani. Wonderful. Sarah, Jenny, thank you so much for the insight, the perspective. One of the things that I try and do on this podcast is provide a shortcut for people who own their business to find success. 
people like us have been in business for a long time. It's great to learn from your own mistakes. It's better to learn from other people's. And it's also great to learn from their successes because it can create that shorter distance between you know point A and point Z. And so uh, I thank you for this. I, I know that I've had many conversations with you both about uh, how you can still reach your wildest dreams, even if you don't live in the biggest of cities. And I think that you you two are proven that and I value your time and, and expertise and insight. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for having us. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short, but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we'd settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 